Well, it's great to be here with you all this morning. And I'm sure we all can attest to the fact that we've had that family member or that friend who just seemed to always be in a bad relationship. Uh, she always seemed to date the wrong guy and never wanted to break it off. Uh, maybe it was the guy who just never could hold down a job and she was always paying for everything. Or the guy who, even though they were dating, would always be calling and texting other women and she had an excuse for why he had to do this. Or the guy who would get angry when he didn't get his way and lose his temper all the time. Or the guy who didn't like her mom, didn't like her sister, in fact, he didn't like you and any of her friends. Or what about the guy who just lied about everything? He lied about what road he took to get home. He lied about what he ate for lunch. It was just in his nature to lie. Or, you know, the worst one is the guy who claimed to be a Christian, but everybody could tell he wasn't. And she was the only one that could see that he was following the Lord. But somehow it was veiled to everyone else. Well, in a weird way, we've not only all had that friend, but in a sense, we've all been that friend who was in a bad relationship. Uh, the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2 reveals that we were once dead in our trespasses and sins, which we once walked. And then it says, following the course of this world. And goes on to add again that we all once lived like that. We all once followed the course of this world. So according to this ancient and inspired text, we all once had a bad relationship with the world. And as we explore our text this week, 1 John 2, 15 through 17, we're going to see that for those who are in Christ, we have got to move forward. We've got to move forward without looking back, without looking to the left or the right. We have got to move forward from that bad relationship we all once had. So uh, let's begin by just reading through our text, uh, the text that you've been in this week, 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Uh, we're going to read it carefully, and then we're going to refer back to it, so keep it open. 1 John 2, 15 through 17 begins with, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever." So before we dig into this text, and we're going to, again, look at it frequently, we need to remember who the author was. We know the author was the Apostle John. We saw earlier that he was probably Jesus's best friend. Uh, he was in Jesus's inner circle of three. We know that for sure. And he was one of the last, in fact, the last surviving apostles. Uh, this letter was written around 90, 95 AD. The other apostles had died, and John was the last one who was alive that had been there uh, since the beginning of Jesus' ministry, uh, had been there even through the preaching of John the Baptist, uh, had been there through the teaching, watching the miracles of Jesus, watching him proclaim who God was to a fallen world. He was there there when Jesus was crucified. Uh, he was there and he saw Jesus after he rose from the dead. He was there when Jesus was here on earth for 40 days and he was there when Jesus ascended to the Father. 
And then he spent his life preaching and teaching and contending for the faith. And now he was the last surviving one. And he wanted to make sure that people got this right. And even among the churches that he was teaching at, there were people who began to twist and distort the truth. They went out with another gospel. They were changing the things that Jesus had taught and had done. And Paul or John was so black and white about all of this. I mean, he said these things so strongly, wanting to teach and instruct and convince and make sure that people got this right. Uh, he used strong terms like light and darkness and love and hate. And we're going to see that he uses that same language, that same contrastive language here as he tells us for the first time in this sermon or in this letter what we are commanded to do or not to do. Uh, this is the first command in the letter, 1 John 2.15. It says, and the Greek mood of the verb is an imperative, which means this is not a suggestion. It's not an indicative statement of fact. This is something that we must do. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. This is a command. Because we are believers, because we are in the light, because we are no longer in the darkness, we can no longer love the world. This bad relationship is over and it is time to once and for all break it off. So that's our first point here. Number one is end your friendship with the world. We need to end our friendship with the world. Just like a bad relationship, a really bad relationship, when it ends, you need to break it off. Not try to continue the friendship or be friends. You need to just totally break it off. Uh, we've seen so far through the writings of John that we're called to love. Uh, God teaches us through John that Christians will love. We're to love God. First uh, John 2, 5 said, whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. And then right after that, in 1 John 2.10, we saw whoever loves his brother abides in the light. So we're called to love God. We're called to love others. And now this shift, we're called not to love as Christians, we are forbidden to love the world. First John 2.15. If we try to remain friends with the world or stay in this friendship with the world, it's as if we're rebelling against God. Uh, let's read what James 4.4 says. James 4.4, uh, James writes to these people, you adulterous people. We know what adultery is, right? It's not being faithful to the one that you're in a commitment with. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? It's hostility. It rages against God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Jesus said, we can't be friends with the world. He said, we can't love God and love the world at the same time. Remember in Matthew 6, 24, Jesus' teaching said, no one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. We have got to break off this friendship with the world. Now, you might be thinking, this is weird, because I thought we were supposed to love the world. Didn't Jesus love the world? He did, right? I mean, John 3, 16, for God so love the world. And now we're being told, do not love the world? I'm confused. What does this mean? Well, when John's teaching here, when he's writing, he doesn't mean don't love the things that God has created. He's saying, uh, not saying don't love the mountains and the ocean and the lakes and the sea otters. 
And he's especially not saying don't love people, right? All people, as all bear the image of God. But he is saying you cannot love the world system, uh, the way the world thinks, the world's thinking that is hostile to and opposed to God. And that's what we are called not to love here. In fact, we are forbidden to love that, and we must break our relationship off from that. And then he explains why. If we look back at our passage, 1 John 2, 16 into 17 says, because for Hotai, all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and, the, and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. Uh, in the beginning there of verse 16 where it says all that is in the world. That world, word all is in the singular. Uh, and it's been unpackaged then by these three things. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life. And these are not random. They are specific three that John unfolds. These are three things that are not from God and they are passing away. Now, the desires of the flesh, as it says there in 1 John 2.16, uh, that word flesh is the Greek word sarx. And it doesn't mean that flesh in itself is bad. And we know that because of John 1.14. John 1.14 says, and the word became Flesh, right? And it's the same Greek word there, sarks. Jesus Christ himself took on human flesh. He didn't become bad or become evil when he became incarnate. He just took on flesh. So it's not flesh in itself that's bad, but it's the desires of the flesh. Uh, the word there for desires is the Greek epithumia, and it means the longing for, the craving of the flesh. It's when your flesh longs and craves for something. It's not fulfilling our desires in a way that's consistent with God's plan and God's design, but it's going beyond that and giving ourselves over to passions and lusts and cravings. We see these two Greek words used in 1 Peter 2.11. 1 Peter 2.11 uses these same two Greek words. Uh, Peter says, beloved, I urge you, I beg you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions, the epithumia of the flesh, of the sarks. Same Greek words, which wage war against your soul. So these desires of the flesh, they literally wage war against your soul. These are the things that the world would tell us to give ourselves over to, to do. You know, when the world says to us, well, do what you want to do. Uh, why are you not doing whatever feels good to you? Why would you say no to yourself? I mean, we only live once, right? Why not grab and get everything that we can? That's the thinking of the desires of the flesh. And then John goes on with the desires of the eyes in 1 John 2, 16. The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes. Same Greek word for desires, epithumia, the longing for, the craving for, the eyes, the things that we see when we become mesmerized by images, things that are put in front of our face, we see those things and we long for those things. We crave those things. We want to have those things. We want to have what we see. We want to devour it. And then he adds one more, pride of life. And pride and life are two interesting Greek words here. Uh, pride is alozania, and it's uh, better translated or can be translated arrogance or boastfulness. 
arrogance or boastfulness of life, the same Greek word is used uh, again in James, James 4, 13 through 16, where James is reasoning with his audience. And he says, you know, if you're going to say tomorrow or today, we're going to do this, that, or the other, and then we're going to plan this and do this. He says, don't forget you're just a mist. You can't be saying what you're going to say like that. He says in James 4, 15, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And then he says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. Same Greek word there that's translated pride in our text. You boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Uh, this arrogance, this pride. And then the word life there, it's not the normative word that we think of when we think of life, when we think of eternal life. The word is zoe. But this is bios. And bios can really mean the resources, the things that are needed for life. Uh, if you look at your ESV version of the Bible, you might have a little number three after pride of life, and it would say pride in possessions. And that word life there uh, can be translated possessions. It's translated in 1 John 3, 17 as goods. Uh, 1 John 3, 17, if you want to look at that, says, but if anyone has the world's goods... That's the same Greek word, bios there. So we see it's this arrogance that comes from our possessions, what we have, what we own, the goods that we have. When we want to say, you know, look at me and look at all that I have. Look at all that I've achieved and attained. Look at my status. Look at who I am. And then the text goes on in 1 John 2, 16. It says, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. These things are not from God. They don't have their origins in God, but their origin is in the world. Uh, the Greek word ek there being translated as from, again, originating in, not the father, but in the world. Like if someone said to me, where are you from? And I would say, I'm from Southern California. My origin is here. So what is the origin of our desires? Is it from, are they from the father? Or are they from this bad past relationship that we had with the world? We got to think about that. If we're a Christian, our new core desires, the new us that's been rewired by the Holy Spirit of God, the desires that come from that inner man, those are from the Father. And so naturally, it would make sense that we cut off the relationship with the desires that are from that old bad relationship we had with the world. Remember, uh, if we're in Christ, we're loved by Jesus. We're in a relationship with Jesus. We're in a committed covenantal connection with the perfect one, the holy one of God. And he chose to put his love on us. In Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, it reminds us that before the foundation of the world, Jesus chose us, it says, that we should be holy and blameless before him. It says, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself. Now think about that for a second. Before you were born, before Jesus was born and took on human flesh, before the world began, he chose us. He made this commitment to us to love us, to be in this relationship with us. He's faithful to us and he calls us to be faithful to him by rejecting the things from this bad past relationship that we had with the world. 
the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life. They are not from God, but they are from the world. So the second point here is be faithful to Jesus. Be faithful to Jesus, the one who chose you and loves you and is in this relationship with you. Now, think about what uh, Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 11, 2, and 3. Uh, he talks about this love relationship, this committed relationship between us and Christ and our need to be faithful in it. Uh, 2 Corinthians 11, 2, and 3 says, For I feel a divine jealousy for you. Since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Betrothed, uh, committed in engagement, committed to marriage. So Paul's saying here, I feel jealous over you because you were supposed to be committed to Christ. And then he says in verse 3, but I am afraid, I'm worried, I'm concerned that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning... Your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. The enemy, the serpent, the world wants to take our thinking away from pure devotion to Christ and to trap us up, to bring us back to the way of the thinking that was associated with the world. And Paul's saying here that he's concerned that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning that will be deceived the same way. How did the serpent deceive Eve? Well, we see that in Genesis 3, 1 through 5, right in the beginning. Uh, if you can flip over there to Genesis 3, 1 through 5, it's a familiar passage, but it reminds us of the craftiness of the serpent. It says in Genesis 3, 1, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Verse 4 of Genesis 3, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Verse 5, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So not only did Satan tell her, hey, it's okay to disobey what God said, but Satan said, and you know what else? God's trying to rip you off. God's cheating you out of a good time. God's holding out on you all those things that he's trying to hold back from you. Those are good things that you should have. And he knows that if you have those, you're going to be happier. It's going to be better for you. He's holding out from you the desires of the eyes, the desires of the flesh, the pride of life. And she was deceived. And we too can be deceived and we find ourselves there if we're looking back at the world or flirting with the world or even returning to the world at all. And we have to see how horrific this all is in the sight of God. I mean, this returning to the world. We might think, oh, it's just no big deal. It's not that big of a deal if I go back to, you know, thinking this or seeing this or, you know, being a little prideful about this. Uh, it's spiritual adultery in God's sight. We saw that in James 4.4, right? And we all know what adultery is. It's a horrific thing. Adultery is when someone breaks the covenant of marriage. Two people who are committed to each other in a relationship and one says, I'm going to cheat on you. I'm not going to be faithful to that relationship. And that's what we do to God when we're not faithful to Jesus, when we go back to the world. 
And it is, again, horrific in his sight. Uh, look at Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 20 through 24. Now, Jeremiah chapter 2 uh, really uh, just unfolds this whole picture, this graphic picture of what this spiritual adultery looks like. If you're reading through the DBR with us, we're in Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 2, just these five verses in 20 through 24. Uh, again, there's so much there in the chapter, but just looking at these five verses about how horrific it is when God's people return or are unfaithful to Jesus. Uh, verse 20, Jeremiah 2.20 says, For long ago I broke your yoke and burst your bonds. God delivered his people from Egypt. He delivered them from slavery. He delivered them from captivity. And in a sense, he's delivered us from slavery to sin. But you said, I will not serve. Yes, on every high hill and under every green tree, you bowed down like a... Whore, the text says. I mean, that's pretty strong language from God through the prophet Jeremiah to his people. I freed you, and yet you went to every high hill and every green tree. That's where the worldly people, where the pagans worshiped their gods. And he's saying, I see you're doing the same thing. On every high hill and under every green tree, you're doing what the world does. And then he says in verse 21, I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. I, I made you from a pure vine. There was nothing wrong with you. And then he said, how then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? You've gone away from what I intended you to be. He says in verse 22, though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord. These people can't uh, wash themselves clean by their own works. They can't undo what they've done. They can't make themselves faithful to God when they're not being faithful to God. And then in verse 23, how can you say, they're saying to God, I'm not unclean. I have not gone after the Baals, the false gods, the world, the way of the world. And then God says, really? Look at your way in the valley. Know what you have done. God's saying, you know what? Not only do I see everything that you do, but I know everything that you think. I know every motive that you have. I see it all. Him saying, you know what? Really look at yourself. See what you have done. And then he describes them in two very interesting and graphic ways. He says, a restless young camel running here and there. And a wild donkey used to the wilderness in her heat sniffing the wind. Who can restrain her lust? None who seek her need weary themselves. In her month, they will find her. So from God's perspective, from heaven's perspective, when he sees someone who should be faithful to him or committed to him running after the things of the world, it's like this spiritual adultery. It's like a restless young camel or a wild donkey. And let me read to you uh, just a little bit from a really good uh, cultural commentary that explains what things are like in their cultural context. Uh, this restless young camel. The young camel, uh, the author says, is ungainly in the extreme and runs off in any direction at the slightest provocation. So this young camel, when there's any provocation, anything rattles it up, it runs in a different direction. It's just unreliable and unfaithful, always changing its mind, right? Uh, much to the fury of the camel driver. A young camel never takes more than about three steps in any direction. So flighty, changing their mind, never reliable, never, never stable in the commitment. Uh, to this day, the young camel provides a dramatic illustration of anything that's unreliable. And God's saying, you know, looking down from heaven's perspective, are you unreliable? 
in your relationship to me? Do you go from me back to the world, to me, to the world? Or are you faithful to Jesus? And then it gets a little grosser. Uh, a wild donkey used to the wilderness in her heat. So a donkey that's in heat. That's what this looks like to God. Uh, let me read this part again from the commentary. It says, the habits of the female donkey in heat are dramatic and vulgar. When in heat, she sniffs the path in front of her, trying to pick up the scent of a male from his urine. Okay, so you've got this female donkey who's walking along this path. She's in heat, and she's sniffing the ground. She's trying to find a male, and the way she finds him is from male urine in the dirt. When she finds it, she rubs her nose in the dust and then straightens her neck and with head high, closes her nostrils and sniffs the wind. What she's really doing is snuffing the dust which is soaked with the urine of a male. With her neck stretched to the utmost, she slowly draws in a long, deep breath, then lets out an earth-shaking bray and doubles her pace, racing down the road in search of the male. That's what we look like. That's what God's people look like from heaven's perspective when they're bent on chasing after the world and these desires, epithumia, these longings, these lusts, these cravings. It is horrific from God's perspective. And God clearly isn't pleased. And you might say, well, oh, that would never be me. But remember, there's a warning to Christians in Ephesians 4.30. Ephesians 4.30 says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Don't grieve him. Don't bring deep pain to him. There are things that we can do that bring pain to God. And when we're unfaithful to Christ, when we go back to that bad relationship we had with the world, this grieves God's Holy Spirit. So just ask yourself right now. I mean, you don't need to write it down. Remember, God sees. He knows what you're thinking. He knows what you've thought. He knows every single motive. Ask yourself, is there an area where I'm giving over to the desires of the flesh? Is there any area of my life where I know what God's design is for that one area, but I've just chosen to do what feels good to me? I don't wanna do it God's way. It doesn't, it's hard. It, it doesn't feel as easy. I'm just gonna do things my way. Have you given over to the desires of your flesh or the desires of the eyes? I mean, are you really panting after what you see? Are you looking at things when no one's watching, longing for and lusting for and craving those things? And only God sees. Or are you boasting in your possessions? Is your confidence in yourself, in your bank account, in your skills and talents and abilities, in your beauty, in your marriage, in your kids, in your successes? And if you say, no, I don't think so, ask yourself, how would you respond if any one of those was taken away? And often when they're taken away, it reveals that's where our confidence, our pride, our arrogance, our boasting was. If we find ourselves in any of those buckets, the great thing is that we can repent right now. I mean, the great news is we don't have to go through any ritual or ordeal or anything. We can just say, God, forgive me, cleanse me, wash me, make me faithful to Jesus again. God wants us to be faithful to him, and he's faithful to us. One of my favorite passages is from Hebrews 13.5. Hebrews 13.5 says, I will never leave you or forsake you. How amazing is that? To think if we're in a relationship with Jesus, he will never leave us. 
He will never forsake us. He will be faithful to us to the end. And he calls us to be faithful to him in return. So if there's any area that you're maybe thinking about or playing with or secretly toying with regarding the flesh, the eyes, or the pride of this life, you need to see it like I need to see hairspray. You might think hairspray. Did she say hairspray? Yes, I said hairspray. You see, although I'll be dating myself, uh, back in the 80s, I loved the big hair. I mean, literally, my hair had to be at least as tall as my forehead, if not, you know, double the height of my entire face. I, I bought all sorts of great, strong hairsprays to get that hair up, to tease it up and get it up and just to make all this big hair look. And as we know, as time went on, our culture transitioned away from that trend. And as my daughters were growing up in my home, they wondered why I would wash my hair and then dry it and style it only to afterwards spray this glue all over it. And they said, why are you using that hairspray? That's so outdated and that's so gross. And, you know, I just said, oh, goodness, it's hard for me not to just spray at the end. So one of my daughters graciously bought me like this, kind of like a setting spray. It's not like the hairspray at all. And you put it on and then you can style your hair. And there's a tiny bit of hold, but none of the lacquer or the glue. Uh, you know, and so I thought, great, I'll use this, and I began to use that. Uh, on Saturday, this last Saturday, I had a meeting here with our Bible study leaders, and as I was getting ready in the morning, I pulled out my styling spray that my daughter gave me and began to spray, and it was empty. So I looked into the back of my cupboards, I looked underneath the sink, and there was the hairspray. <laughs> And I was like, yes. So I reached in, grabbed it, and just did my thing. And whew, that smelled bad. I forgot how intense that lacquer was. But, you know, all was good. My hair was set, and I came here to church. No one would ever know, right? Well, that night, uh, I had my family over. And we ate dinner together. We carved pumpkins. We were hanging out outside. And it got to be a little bit cold. So I went over to our outdoor fire pit and I got one of those long lighters, turned on the gas, lit the flame and poof. No, I am not kidding. My hair went up in blue flames. I have empty patches to show it right now. It was horrific. You know, the fire tested me and my deeds were evident, right? <laughs> I mean, that hairspray lit up and I was outed. I, by God's mercy, I was able to pat it out super quick. My family was shocked and horrified. My son-in-law was almost weeping. He said he thought I melted half my face off. I mean, it was literally God's mercy that I was able to pat that out, but I ran upstairs and I threw that hairspray away. <laughs> I mean, just as a reminder, the bald patches will remind me if there's any area, you know, that maybe you're thinking, I'm just going to put this at the back of the shelf and no one's going to know and I'm going to pull it out only in case of emergency, you know, only in case I really need it or I get to that place, throw it out, throw it away, cut it off, have no relationship with the things of the world anymore. Uh, Jesus said this, right? Matthew 5, 29 and 30. Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. You throw it away. And then again, in Matthew 5, 30, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, get rid of it. Whatever you might have, you know, in that back shelf, even if it's the back shelf of your mind, anything that has to do with sexual sin, uh, pornography, uh, many women watch and view pornography now, 
uh, overeating, just overindulging in food or alcohol or smoking pot or taking prescription drugs, any of that stuff, don't leave it on the back of your shelf. Right now, you throw that away. Get rid of it. Any temptation to waste too much time on social media or the internet or watching the news again and again and again and again, and you don't have time to do your job, you don't have time to read, you don't have time to pray, but you can check that news again and again or the social media feed again and again and again. We need to cut it off. God sees what we're doing. Maybe it's the wrong group of friends we need to say no more to. Or maybe it's just us placing our confidence in amassing riches for ourselves or education for ourselves, or, you know, whatever it is that we're longing for so that we could receive the approval of man as we put our confidence in us rather than in God. Or maybe it's just this fear of being rejected by man. And so we hide the gospel. We hide the truth. We're ashamed of the truth. We don't want to be identified as followers of Christ. Any of these things, we need to stop. We need to put an end to it. We need to throw that thinking out. And as we learned in 1 John 1, 9, Jesus promises us, God promises us through the truth of 1 John that if we confess our sins, even if right now we say, God, I confess you're right, I'm wrong, I'm turning He's faithful and just. He will cleanse us and forgive us from all that unrighteousness. And we can be back in full fellowship with God, faithful to Jesus. And the text goes on to show one more thing, and that is that not only are we disobedient when we, uh, you know, stay one foot in with the world, but we're, we're absolutely foolish because all of these things are passing away, the text says. Uh, in the beginning of 1 John 2, 17, it says, and the world is passing away along with its desires. Uh, John meaning here, Christ meaning here, these things are literally gonna burn. And I'm sure you've heard that before, it's all going to burn. And you might think how oh, that's funny, but that's not biblical. No, it is biblical. The Bible says it's all going to burn. Second uh, Peter 3.10, and the, even the verses after that, but Second Peter 3.10 alone says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief and the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. It's all going to burn. But in contrast, as the end of 1 John 2, 17 says, in contrast to this burning, this passing away, whoever does the will of God abides forever. So the third and final point is look forward to the future. We can look forward to the future. We're out of that bad relationship with the world. We're in the perfect relationship now with Christ. And we can move forward without looking back, but looking forward to the future. And John clearly contrasts now this person and the world that's passing away with the person who does the will of God, who will remain forever. And as we all know, this time on this planet is short. It's very, very short, and it's coming to an end. This was never Jesus's real home, and it's not our real home either. In John 17, 15 and 16, Jesus was praying to the Father. John 17, 15 and 16, Jesus said, I don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. He said, they, meaning us, his followers, are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Jesus saying, this isn't my home, and it's not our home either. All of these things are passing away. We just recently had in our area those Silverado Canyon fires. 
Uh, that was scary for a lot of us. Uh, people were evacuated from Lake Forest and from Irvine. Friends and family members of mine were evacuated. Well, what if God said to us, I am going to ask you to live temporarily in a house that is going to be in an evacuation zone when a fire comes because a fire is going to come and burn that house down. But don't worry, I'll let you know in plenty of time when you need to be evacuated so that you'll be gone before the house burns down. But I want you to live there temporarily. And then after that house burns down, I've got another house for you in a far better neighborhood. A bigger, a more beautiful house in a neighborhood where nothing will ever interrupt that house at all. Uh, how would you feel about that temporary house? Would you be shopping every day for the right curtains for that house? Uh, would you be, you know, uh, taking pictures and hanging them on the wall and making sure that the frame was right and coordinated with the other frames and was perfectly level and perfectly square on the wall? Would you be spending hours in Home Depot or Lowe's looking for that perfect paint color? Uh, would you be saving up your money to buy dream appliances for that house? No, right? Because you know it's only temporary. It's going to burn. Instead, you would get to work, you'd do it as you were called to do, and you'd be ready to leave whenever God said go. I read about a couple that lived in Anaheim uh, about three years ago. I read this news article. They lived in Anaheim, and they had this beautiful house. And they spent every working hour for three years working on this house. They remodeled every room of the house. They redid the backyard. They got a new pool, jacuzzi, uh, barbecues. Inside, they got all of their dream appliances. It was a gorgeous, beautiful house. And then three years ago, fires went through Anaheim Hills and that beautiful house that they had worked so hard on every weekend and every day when they got home from work was reduced to rubble in an hour. You know, when I thought about that, I thought, wow, that would be so discouraging to work so hard for so many years and then to have it just gone like that. And I thought, how much energy and effort am I putting into things that are destined to burn? And not that it's bad at all to have a beautiful house, uh, to be able to use that beautiful home for the glory of God. There's nothing wrong with that. But when our hope begins to be settled in these things, when we start making decisions where we're forsaking the better decision for a more temporal decision, that's when our thinking's off. And we need to remember that this is not our home. We're going to our real home. Jesus said this in John 14, 1 and 2. Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. And then he said, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Jesus saying, do you believe me? Jesus saying, believe me, in my Father's house are many rooms and I go and prepare a place for you. I've got something so much better for you than this. You gotta believe me. And as the text wraps up in 1 John 2, 17, whoever does the will of God abides forever. We know that Jesus came to do the Father's will and he calls us to do the Father's will too. Uh, not to earn our salvation, but because we're saved. Because we're saved, we do the Father's will. And when we move out and away from that bad relationship that we were in with the world, uh, doing the things that God has called us to do, you know, in time, our desire for, our remembrance of, our connection to that old bad life, it just fades away and it's no longer there. And we can see this in Paul. Uh, Paul wrote in Galatians 6.14, he said, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And then he said, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I mean, Paul was at that point where the world was crucified to him. The world was dead to him. And in a sense, he said, and I am dead to the world. Uh, they don't recognize me anymore. I mean, have we taken ownership of that yet? Have we gotten to the point where we've been so faithful to Jesus that we can say, you know what? I don't even have any desire for it. I don't remember that relationship with the world anymore. Or are we just clamoring still to try to pick paint colors for the wall in a very temporary place? Uh, years ago, I got to hear Elizabeth Elliot speak. I've got to actually hear her speak a few times. She was a great missionary, super wise woman. And, you know, just have very pithy and, again, wise things to say that would really kind of connect the dots for you and your Christian life. And I remember her talking about her friend. And she said her friend had a daughter, and her daughter, her friend's daughter, had just broken up with her boyfriend. And, you know, she said to her daughter, her friend said to the daughter, you know, you need to finish your ironing. And the daughter said, finish my ironing? Finish my ironing? I just broke up with my boyfriend. I'm dying right now. And the mother said to her daughter, well, I guess you'll just have to iron while you die. <laughs> you know, and that might be it for us, right? As we're coming out of this bad relationship, let's just keep doing the things that God has called us to do. The bad relationship is over right? We got to cut off that friendship with the world, stay faithful to Jesus, keep our focus on the future, and if necessary, keep ironing while we die. <laughs> Let's pray real quick. God, thank you so much for this great group of women. I thank you so much for each and every soul that's represented here. I love these women so much, Lord, and I know that you love them beyond anything that I could even begin to imagine. God, please help us, Lord. God, help us right now to just cut it off with the world, that we wouldn't even try to have this friendship with the world and the world's thinking anymore. God, that we would be faithful to Jesus. God, if we're struggling with the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eye, or even pride of life, God, help us to identify what we're doing and to say no more. Help us to repent even right now, to say, God, I'm sorry. It's hard. I'm struggling. That thing's in the back shelf of that cupboard, and I know it's there, and I got to get rid of it. Uh, whether it's a tangible thing or just something in my thinking or in my heart, God, please help us right now. Give us the faith and the courage that we need to say no more. God, we give it over to you. We throw it in the trash. We repent and we turn and we're looking forward to the future. God, we're looking forward to all that we have in Christ. We thank you so much for Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.